Uh, this week and next week, we'll end our time in the book of Judges because it's true, all good things must come to an end. Someone at Wednesday night church asked, since Samson was the final judge, what's the rest of the series going to be about? I mean, we do have several more chapters, and I'm glad you asked. I had a similar question when planning out this series. These final chapters in the book of Judges serve as a sort of double ending to the double introduction. If you'll remember, there's a, a double introduction. Now we're going into the double ending, and sort of the story of the Judges is sandwiched between this double introduction and this double conclusion. These concluding stories are like vignettes. They're little snapshots, and they are not for the faint at heart. The darkest stories in this dark book are found here. These are snapshots that reveal the spiritual state of Israel during the Judges. It's a grotesque picture of what God is saving his people from. This is what God's people look like when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Think about it like this, though the analogy is imperfect, as all are. Imagine someone writing a book called The Presidents, where they told short little stories about significant presidents, and then at the end of the book, they told stories about a random family in Nebraska to give you a sense of what life was like under the presidents. And through this average Joe in Nebraska and America's heartland, they make some sort of broader commentary about what life was like during the presidents. This morning we meet a guy from Nebraska that's not really from Nebraska. We meet a random guy named Micah. He's not, of course, from Nebraska. He's from the hill country of Ephraim. And Micah has something to teach us about the dangers of corrupt worship, the sort of religion that does not honor God as he is, but seeks to fashion God into something more palatable to us, a sort of religion that does not seek conformity to God's will, but seeks to conform God to our own. For all people in all places, this is an insidious temptation. For in those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I think you'll see by the end, this is a most appropriate Advent sermon. The title of our sermon this morning is Priest for Hire, a Cautionary Tale. Priest for Hire, a Cautionary Tale. Look with me in chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, well, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So a man named Micah overhears his mother uttering a curse on someone who stole from her 1,100 pieces of silver, and he starts to feel bad. Why? Because, well, uh, he is the one that stole the silver. And so he goes to her and says, Mom, I, I took the silver. I actually have it. Now, what's interesting, his mother has no questions, and she has no punishment, right? Her response is odd. Blessed be my son by the Lord. Maybe she's trying to reverse the curse that she just put on her son, right? 
Or maybe she's excusing her son and ignoring the fact that he just confessed this because she can't think of a world where her son does anything wrong. Uh, In the Keller commentary that we provided our discipleship group leaders with as we work through this book, he makes a, a neat point that's a secondary point, but worth noticing. A condemning and punishing parent hurts a child, but so too does an excusing one. Her parenting, Keller argues, helps us understand why Micah is as he is. His mother then dedicates the 1,100 pieces of silver to the Lord for her son's benefit and restores to him the money that he stole. Oh, all this is is not quite good, right? So the son steals this money. The mom is is cursing someone for stealing it. The the, the son says, I I stole it, let me have it. And she says, well, I dedicate all of that money to the Lord and I'm giving it back to you. Let's pick up the story in verse four. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, this is not the main point, but it's a point worth making. She spends how much on this work for her son? 200 pieces of silver. How much did she dedicate to the Lord? 1,100 pieces of silver. Not only, as we will see momentarily, is this all bad theologically, but she's just lying, brazenly lying to God, to her son and herself. Oh, all of this that you gave, all these 1,100 pieces of silver, I dedicate all of it to you except 900 stays with me. Now, lying to God about our finances is never a good idea. This whole project is sinful. It's all a bad idea. Listen to Exodus chapter 20, verse four, for just a moment. I'll read it. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. This is one of the commands of the Lord. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above, in the earth beneath, or the water under the earth. Why might that command be? You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Because you might be drawn to worship it. No image can capture the character of God, the totality of who he is. Some traditions are more open to using visual stuff like iconography and worship than others, but but all agree here. This is a a basic Christian and pre-Christian truth. If you make this thing, you will be tempted to do two very bad things. First, fashion God in your own image. You've got the raw materials. You've got an idea of God. You make from that what you think God should be like. And the second temptation is to worship it as if it were a God. To worship a God made of human hands. This might seem like an odd ancient thing to craft a God of silver put him in your house and be tempted to worship him. And in some ways it is. I don't think you're tempted to do that. But we are tempted to worship a God that we fashion in our own image. We are tempted to worship a God that is not the true and living God. We are tempted to emphasize the ideas of God that we really like or that seem pleasant or easy to swallow. And then sort of downplay the ones that we don't like. It's like Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby praying to sweet baby Jesus, all cuddly in his manger. We may do it with a little less sacrilege, but are we not tempted to do the same thing? Find a favorite Jesus and then just stick to him and ignore the other parts. I mean, we like the Jesus who heals people. He's great. But do we like the Jesus who says to the people he's healed, go and sin no more? We like the Jesus who speaks of heaven. Will we listen to the Jesus who speaks of hell? 
We like the Jesus who calls out other people's sins. Oh yeah, get those Pharisees, man, get those guys. But do we like the Jesus when this Jesus calls out our own sins? You see, we must worship God as he is, not as we wish he were. Which leads to a second and more foundational question. How do we know God as he is? We must learn who God is by searching the scriptures, finding Jesus Christ and interpreting the whole book in light of his revelation. What's the problem with the Pharisees? The problem with the Pharisees is not that they care about the scriptures. The problem with the Pharisees isn't even that they search the scriptures. The problem with the Pharisees is that they search the scriptures without knowing to where the scriptures point. They search the scriptures without knowing what they're about. See, we worship this God who reveals himself to us in the Bible as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three eternal persons with one nature. This is the God revealed in scripture. In this living book, we come to know this living God. One of my professors uh, in my hermeneutics seminar, hermeneutics is like uh, the, the art and science of interpretation. And so we take in our doctoral seminars an advanced hermeneutics class. So you think about sort of interpretation of the Bible. And he's an old uh, Romanian guy. And all these students are parsing all these words. And he says, I will tell you my theology of, hermeneut- of, of inspiration with, in one sentence. A perfect God speaks perfectly. A perfect God speaks perfectly. Our perfect God speaks perfectly through his word. The living God speaks through his living word. We're not left to feel around and figure out what God's like by piecing it together from all sorts of sources and and hoping we have a good picture. We're not free to go to the recesses of our mind and come up with this idea of of a God that we most like and then worship that God in our mind. In this living book, we come to know the living God. In this perfect book, the perfect God speaks perfectly. We don't correct the scriptures in their view of God. We, we submit to the scriptures and their view of the author who's written them. In response, we demonstrate our love for this Lord and obedience. If you love me, you will obey me, the scriptures teach This is elementary, but so much of our spiritual life is. We must follow the clear commands of the Lord given us in this book. I think you could make the case that Judges is a story of what happens when we don't. Judges is a story of what happens on a macro level in the the whole nation and in a micro level in our own hearts and in our own lives when, when everyone just does what is right in their own eyes. Now, this is an important point that we gotta highlight. Micah's mother has relatively orthodox or correct theology. Like if you'll notice in your Bible, like the Lord is all caps. She's speaking of the Lord, of Yahweh, of the God of Israel, the Lord of all. So she is not, in other words, saying, okay, my son restored this, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a, an idol of the Baal, a, a pagan god, or I'm gonna make a Dagon, and I'm gonna give it to my son. No, in her mind, she's speaking about the living God, but she's worshiping him in ways that he does not command us, them, to worship him. Why? Because it just seems right in her own eyes. Like she doesn't at this point want to worship the gods of the nations. She wants to worship the Lord God in the same way that the pagan gods are worshiped. And as we keep reading, we see that Micah decides to make one of his sons a priest. You can't, you can't do that. 
You can't, you can't, I mean, you can't just say, like, the priesthood was to be from the tribe of Levi. Levites are priests. There's a process by which one becomes a priest, and you can't just become a priest. So now we've got a family who has decided that they can dictate how the true God is worshipped, and then they're going to set up their own little priesthood in their home. It's just a little bit of compromise, really, because we're still talking about the Lord God, right? We're still talking about the God of Israel, not Dagon or Asherah or Baal. But a little bit of compromise is, is, is all it takes. God has not permitted the Israelites to worship any way they want. He's given them abundantly clear commands, graciously clear commands, that a child and an adult can hear and understand. But it just seems fun to Micah and them to have their own little shrine. Our son could be a priest, how cool is that? Church on the couch, how cool is that? Church without ever gathering with the church, how cool is that? Church with no Bible, how cool is that? Church where we just do the, how cool is that? Oh, the incessant desire to bend worship to fit our own desires. This is a tale as old as time. We submit to the living God, the God of the Bible, and he calls us to obey him completely. He is the standard by which all thoughts, actions, and ideologies are judged. He is our north star in a world of chaos and confusion. He is our heart's true north. We choose to live not by our own will, what's right in our own eyes, but by his revealed will, what is right in his eyes. I'm gonna make a statement that you know, may or may not be fully true, but hear me out. Discipleship begins when you change your mind. Discipleship begins when you change your mind. When is the last time you changed your mind about something because of what the Bible teaches to be true? That you submitted to an authority outside of your own self. It is so tempting for us, just like in the time of the judges, to do what is right in our own eyes, but really the word of God corrects us and convicts us. And we begin following Jesus when we stop doing what's right in our own eyes and start living the way he calls us to live. What happens when we change our minds? To repent of our sins means to change our mind about sin, to turn from it. I, I used to just embrace it, now I don't want to. I'm gonna live this way. Repentance is as simple, at least in the beginning stages, of changing our mind about who will obey. Back to the story, verse seven. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. The man departed from the town of Bethlehem and Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said, where you come from? He said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. Micah says, where are you from? He says, I'm a Levite. Of Judah, come out of Bethlehem, trying to find a place to stay. Are you kidding me? You're a priest? Although God is answering my prayers, you're not gonna believe this. I actually have my own shrine. I, I, I made Billy Bob the, the priest, but it's okay, you can be the priest. He's not a real priest, he just wasn't until one came. So I got a Levite now, so I got a real priest for my little home shrine, and this is gonna be really great. Now, notice. Here in this portion of the text, the identity of this priest is hidden. 
The identity of this priest is hidden. We'll find out at the end. Don't skip around. Just listen to the sermon and you'll catch it, okay? Verse 10. And Micah said to him, stay with me and, and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest. And he was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Come to my house, be to me like a father. I'll, I'll feed you, I'll clothe you, and I'll pay you. And you'll have a nice little life. I just need you to be like a father to me and uh, you know, the little priest, my son, and, and we'll all be good. Levite thinks about it as well. That's not too bad. I need a place to stay. I need a roof over my head. I need something. I guess I could find the worst situation. So you know what? I, uh, sure, sure. I'll take you up on it. So he decides he'll do it. And verse 13 is probably the most revealing verse when we think about the motives of Micah. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because the Lord is gracious and kind. No. Because the Lord is sovereign and just and right and all his ways are right? No. Because I have a Levite as a priest. I've cracked the code. Now my shrine not, might not have been too legit when you know Billy Bob was the priest. But now I have a real Levite and God will give me what I want. Verse 13 tells us who's Micah, who Micah's God is. Micah wants a God that serves him, not a God that he must serve. If your God looks like you, thinks like you, wants everything that you want, never corrects you, then congratulations, you see your God every time you look in the mirror. Do not the scriptures speak of God giving us the desires of our hearts? Yes, he does, but here's the key point. As he conforms our heart to his, he gives us the desires of our hearts. He trains us and teaches us not to want the things the world wants, but to want him. And as we're walking in alignment with the will of, the God, of God, as we're walking in alignment with the will of God, it is true. He will give us the desires of our heart. Now, chapter 18 is connected to chapter 17 by this priest for hire, this unnamed priest who's got him a nice little setup now at Micah's house, I might add. In chapter 18, we meet a whole tribe of people, a tribe that's a lot like Micah, the tribe of Dan. Now, very briefly, they are still homeless amongst the tribes of Israel because in part they did not fulfill their role in the conquest of driving people out. They have not obeyed God or their obedience has been half-hearted, non-committal, and are alienated from the rest of Israel. They're still searching for a place to call home. When one day they stumble upon the house of our good friend from chapter 17, Micah. Let's look at verse two, chapter 18. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to him, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They turned aside and said, who, who brought you here? What are you doing out in this place? What's your business here? 
And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He hired me and I'm his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we're setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Is that a priest out here in the hill country from Bethlehem? What are you doing out here? Oh, I work here. Yeah. I live here too. Great spot. Micah gives me all I could need, really. Oh, you're a priest. So you have some sort of connection with God. Here's our question for you, priest. Will our journey be successful? (laughs) This priest cracks me up on one level. He's like, uh, yes, right? Let me think, uh, yes, I've searched the Lord and I've inquired of him and go in peace for the Lord is with you, says this priest for hire. So they go to a place called Laish and see they're living pretty good there. The priest said that we would be successful. So let's go and pillage these people, kill them and take their land, and we can live there. Now, it's outside the promised land. Key point. But if you've ever watched House Hunters, you know you gotta compromise on something. I mean, you can't get the, I mean, Nick's shaking his head. I mean, he's watched a lot of HGTV over his life. I mean, you can't get the two-car garage, the pool, the master bedroom. You can't get it all. You gotta compromise on something, but I'll let House Hunters help me preach this sermon. It's all about location, location, location. And for these people, it's in the wrong location. But the old priest said, we'd be successful. Let's go pay him a visit. Chapter 18, verses 16 through 20. Now, instead of just a couple of guys, 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. Now, this is a different welcoming party. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with 600 men and weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? They said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan of Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the carved image and went along with the people. You're coming with us. But think about it, man. Would you rather toil the rest of your life away here in Micah's house? And nobody knows who Micah is. Nobody cares about Micah. Or you come with us and we'll make you the most popular priest in the world. You'll be a priest to 600 people. I mean, this is country church to the mega church. This is career advancement 101. This is a no-brainer if you're in the business of religion. 
Not only are they offering you a much, much, much bigger platform with much, much more people, but they're offering it to you with 600 people who will kill you if you say no. So they've taken your decision-making out of it. So he says, yeah, you know what? This is actually a pretty good setup for me. I can go live with these guys in this land that's pretty good, and I'll be a hero for these people for the rest of their lives. I will be their little religious guru. And these gods that have been in Micah's house, they'll be their gods. And it'll work out great. The priest just does some quick math in his head and says, I'm yours. Of course, Micah won't be happy. His people run after them, if we were to keep reading, and say, what's wrong with you? You took our gods, you took our priest. And the text says this, but they were too strong for him. False gods always disappoint. False gods always overpromise and underdeliver. You can't really hold on to it, man. Everything Micah trusted in was gone because someone took it from him. False gods always let us down. Chapter 18 goes on to tell us a little more about the people of Dan and the conquering of the land that they would take. But one tragic and striking plot twist gets slipped in right at the very end. Notice I said at the beginning of the sermon, we've not yet been told the name of this Levite priest. Verse 30, chapter 18. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Did you catch that? The, the Levite from Bethlehem, the priest for hire, whose services and presence goes to the highest bidder, a man of compromise, not conviction, a man who certainly has a price. He's a descendant of Moses. That Moses. Some preachers will say this, God has no grandchildren. <laughs> God has no grandchildren. What's that mean? It means that that each of us come to know the living God. Certainly the living faith of our families is, can help us in that journey. You know, you, you have godly parents who tell you the gospel. I mean, the New Testament speaks, Timothy, your mother and your grandmother, this living faith reside in them and they pass it on. But, but Timothy at some point had to say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I submit to his will for my life. That his obedience is not automatic because his parents were obedient. He doesn't just have faith because his parents had faith. He's not just magically a Christian because his parents are a Christian. God has no grandchildren. Like, you will stand before the judgment seat of God. No one for you. You alone. Your faith must be your own. What is this whole story supposed to teach us? A story about one man and then a whole tribe and that story is connected by this, by this priest for hire. This descendant of Moses who's selling his soul for whatever is gonna get him what he wants. 
I think 1831, the last verse of the chapter answers it very subtly. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. There's two ways to worship. The true and the living God, his way, or the false gods of the nations in false ways. The tabernacle, the house of God at this moment in history was at Shiloh. The tabernacle, the place where God's presence was promised to his people, it was in Shiloh all along. That should have been the center of their lives. Their worship should have been centered there. This is a story of man-centered religion taking the place of God-centered religion. This is a story of disordered lives flowing from disordered worship. This is a story of disordered lives flowing from disordered worship. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Perhaps you remember the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. If we were to keep reading, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a translation of the word tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In other words, John is wanting his writers to know that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the God of all nations, the only God, the one God, the true God, the living God, existed before all time and all things. And this is the God of Israel. For he took on flesh and he tabernacled among them. The same God who made himself known in this tabernacle in Shiloh in the time of the judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, the same God would wrap himself in flesh and tabernacle among us. We center our lives, not on images, idols, or priests for hire. We center our lives not on things that we may lose, we center our lives, not on family. And family is one of the greatest gifts, man. We get to take it a road to these basketball games and uh, it's just, it, there's nothing better in a worldly sense. I mean, we just have so much fun with her. Can't imagine life without her. And my parents, and it, I love my family, but, but if I center around my, my life around my family, that's, that's not enough. And I love the, the, the job that I get to do here as serve as the pastor and the other things I get to do in the community. Like I love those things and they're great. And they take a lot of time and energy and sacrifice. But I can't, I, if I center my life around those things, then, I, then I, I'm centering my life around something else. I love this church and our ministries and I believe what God's doing here. 
And I just urged our members to be a part of that in 2023. And I, I believe so wholeheartedly in it. But I, I, don't, I don't center my life around just this church alone and, and just her ministries. I, we center our lives around Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone that he is the foundation of the church. He is the foundation on which all things are built. We center our whole lives, our families, the things we do for fun, the things we do for our job, the way we treat other people, all of that. We center it not on us and ourselves, and our, but on Jesus, the risen Christ. The great Christmas hymn proclaims, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. As we even sang this morning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. A true Levite, worship team, you can come on up. A true priest from Bethlehem who leads us not away from the heart of God, but right into the middle of it. Do you know this Jesus? Will you center your life around him? Let's pray. Father, your word is alive. And even here in some of the, the least preached upon passages of the whole Bible, do we find profound and beautiful truth for life. Lord, help us not be like this priest for hire and sell our souls for what others want from us. Help us, Lord, build our lives around you. For you have come among us and you have pitched your tent, so to speak. You have brought the house of God to us. Lord, may we not center our lives on anything or anyone other than you. Lord, even in this passage, the gospel of Jesus Christ shines through. This crooked priest from Bethlehem points us to an honest priest from Bethlehem. This priest for hire, Lord, points us to the one who would not sell his soul when offered the kingdoms of the world. And this priest who drove people further and further from the heart of God reveals to us the priest who brings us in to your very heart. Friends, while we pray, I just have two questions for you in response. Do you know this Jesus? Have you changed your mind from whatever the world teaches about him to what the Bible teaches about him? Do you know him? And my second question is, will you center your life around him? Will you build your life around the word of God who came and tabernacled among us?